The discussion and interview presented in this podcast are of our opinions and experiences. Anything stated in the following conversations are not in any way a substitute for consulting a medical professional. If you are experiencing grief, there may be resources available to you in your area. If you are feeling sad, overwhelmed, or having thoughts of harming yourself, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 to talk to someone now, or go to suicidepreventionlifeline.org or cometolifepodcast.com for more information. If this is an emergency, call 911. This season, we will be discussing topics such as grief and loss, mental health, and addiction. Listener discretion is advised. told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Welcome to the fourth episode of Come to Life with Larry Sherfield and myself, today's host, Peter Brinkerhoff. With us today as our guest is not only our brother in Christ, he is also my brother-in-law. He is, among many other things, an alcoholic and drug user who has been sober for 40 years. In case you missed it, he spoke about the science and physiology of addiction in our previous episode. Tonight, as the title suggests, we will discuss his life, origins, struggles, and victory over addiction, and how his paths led him to the one which leads to the coming kingdom of God. Without further ado, the continuation with Carl Beck. Now, having known you for... 30 years. Uh, I'm 42 now. And like I said earlier, I've known you for since I was 12. I've heard you say a few times that uh, like an, another two-parter, um, kind of what was the turning point for you? Uh, and then if you could explain until you've had your last drunk, uh, until you can remember your last drunk, you haven't had it. Okay. So what happened to me was uh, an interesting thing. Um, I was working at a tire sp- center. And I got my finger caught in the tire machine and I couldn't go to work. And of course we were working under the table. There was no workman's comp. There was no unemployment. So I couldn't pay my bills. And because I couldn't pay my bills, my bills were mounting up, but I still needed to drink. So I started writing bad checks. And I wrote bad checks to people who knew me. I sat at the liquor store and wrote a bad check. And the uh, store clerk wanted to question me about this check I was handing him. And, uh, and the manager, the owner came in and he said, oh, well, that's Carl. I know where to find him. And I said, yeah, you know where to find me. And I knew that check was going to bounce. And I knew there were three more coming back. So I decided in my head that what I needed to do was kill myself. But being a good, responsible person, I wanted to kill myself in such a way that it would look like an accident and that my insurance would pay so my bills would be paid because I didn't want people speaking bad of me when I was gone. So I sat in a room and I thought, well, you know, if I drink, uh, if, I, if I polish off this vodka and, and use every pill in the house, that should do it. So I drank about a quart of vodka and washed down every pill in the house. Unfortunately for me, most of those were painkillers and aspirin. And when I woke up the next morning, not only was I not dead, I was feeling fine. I was feeling great. I wasn't even hungover and it just really depressed me. <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, that's not enough alcohol. If I can get a gallon of vodka, that'll kill me for sure. I know that will. 
So I couldn't go down to the liquor store because I knew their bad checks were already coming back and I didn't have any money. So I thought, well, I know. I'll sell the cassette deck out of my car. So I got in my car and I started to head down to the pawn shop in Victorville. It's about 20 miles away. And I stuck a tape in to listen to it one last time and it ate it. So I went back and I, and I sat there and I thought, oh my God, I know I'll sell my TV. So I turned the TV on to watch it one last time and it didn't work. So I thought the next day I thought, I'll just take my car down and I'll sell it for whatever I can get. And I went out the next morning and my car would not start. So I sat there and I tried to, I tried to get a black widow to bite me, but I'm scared of spiders. That didn't work. So I, finally I went over to my father's house because he was, lived on the same property as me. And now he is an alcoholic at this point and he is deep. I know he's way down on the list alcohol-wise. And I had turned his uh, girlfriend in for child abuse uh, about six months earlier and they'd made her go to uh, recovery. So he had all the recovery home names that I didn't know about. But I went over there to talk to him, and he, I walked through the door, and he looked at me and said, son, you're sick. You need help. And I thought, if that drunk can tell I'm sick, I must really be sick. So he said, well, here, I've got the names of all of these recovery places. If you go to one and you go through it, even if you drink, when you come back, you can, you can stay with me. And I thought, okay, well, that makes it pretty good because I'm about to be evicted because I can't pay my rent. So I called down to this uh, recovery home and they said, oh, well, you got to be sober for 72 hours. When did you have your last beer? And I said, I had already said that morning. So they said, well, you'll have to wait. So I had to wait the weekend. It was Labor Day weekend. And uh, during the meantime, my father called down there and the lady uh, that ran the place, Leona, told him, well, you know, if he wants it, he needs to do it himself. So when I came back, he wouldn't even give me a ride. And he told me that he, he, I couldn't live with him if I wasn't sober. So I ended up walking. Uh, 20 miles in the hot sun, and I walked through the door, and this lady, Leona, said, you know, you look like you were dead. And she said, besides, I never told you daddy couldn't give you a ride. I just said you needed to want it yourself. <laughs> so um, when I sat down with Leona and, and explained what was going on, one of the things she told me was, she said, you know, let me explain something to you, Carl. She said, if you have not had if you cannot remember your last drunk, you haven't had it. So if you can't remember what was so bad that it caused you to come here, the minute you forget that and you can't tell that story, then there's nothing to keep you from drinking again because you've forgotten how bad it was. So for me, when I walked through that door, there was dead and there was sober. And three years later when I left, there was dead and there was sober. And yesterday when I was in the grocery store and went to get some bread and they kept it right next to the alcohol because they like to sell that stuff. And I have to make a decision between getting a loaf of bread and a gallon of vodka. For me, there is dead and there is sober because that's the only two choices. And, and it, if I forgot what I went through back there, if I couldn't relate that story to you and remember it, then there'd be, there'd be, not feeling so good and sober and there's nothing to keep you from there my wife still works for the department of social services she deals with people who are trying to get ssi she deals with a lot of people who have addiction problems and what have you and she'll she'll be talking to somebody sometimes and they'll go oh well i'm 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 a recovering uh, alcoholic and she'll go oh um so when did you get when was your last drunk and they can't remember or when did you get sober and they can't remember you know yeah I can tell you it was August 29th, 1980. It was 40 years ago. If it's, remember, if, you, if it's enough to keep you sober for 40 years, you remember the day. You remember what it was. Don't forget it. And that's one of the things that AA does. Yeah. AA allows you to go and tell what, when you get up on that platform, you talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And you keep it fresh in your mind because if it doesn't stay fresh, then... People who, you'll, you'll hear people, well, I fell off the wagon after 10 years. No, you yeah. forgot why. Yeah. You, 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 you didn't keep it fresh in your mind. So before Larry goes on to the next question, um, we, see, we see commercials on, on TV um, you know, advertising these $10,000 a month. Um, you know, you come to our facility in Malibu and, and you leave, you're cured. We cure your addiction. Is that possible? Not as far as I'm concerned, no. 
As far as I'm concerned, that's one of those great things. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I don't believe that people can do that. And what they, they do is they, they make it sound like you can come to them as an alcoholic, they can cure you, and you can go back out and drink sociably. No, that's not, you know what? If you can go back out and drink sociably and do that for the rest of your life, you weren't an alcoholic to begin with. You just had a drinking problem. And there is a difference. There are people who have a drinking problem who drink for certain reasons and aren't alcoholic. And if those reasons go away, then they don't drink to excess and they can go on. That does not mean you can cure an alcoholic yeah. or, or a gambling. You can't take somebody who's a, a addicted to gambling and cure them to the point where they can go down to the track and just make two bets and walk away. That's just stupid. Yeah. That's asking for trouble. It's not going to happen. Uh, they may do it the first four or five times, but eventually they're going to end up right there where they were. Oh, fair enough. And going back to what you were saying before, you need that why for the re- a reason to change, but also maybe most importantly to stay away from that, what, that you're addicted to, whether it be alcohol, pills, or whatever that is. got to have that why to keep now we call reminding it, yourself. Right? We call that a significant emotional event. Okay. And it has to be something that's it's, it's life-changing. If it's going to change anything, it, it needs to be life-changing. You would think... You would think that if when you were 20, you uh, went down and got your driver's license because you had to drink and you ended up in a head-on collision and on a hospital bed and they thought you were going to die, you would think that would create a significant emotional event. Yeah. It did not. Hmm. It did not make a dent. As a matter of fact, they made me go as part of my thing they, because I was drunk. They made me go, the military did, to, to alcohol awareness classes. And we'd get out and somebody would say, Wow, that was really scary. And I go, yeah. And they go, where are you going? I'm going to the NCO club. I need a drink. That scared the heck out of me. Didn't yeah. phase me in the least. Didn't yeah. stop me. It, it, it was not, to me, a significant emotional event. And that's the thing. And the other thing is when you reach bottom, people around people need to help people reach bottom. You can lower the bottom for people. You can help them reach it rather than propping them up and keeping them from it. And when they do get there, you need to be there to make sure that they go get the help they need and that they understand that it's it's them that needs help. Yeah. And and the help is for them and and they need to be doing it for all the right reasons. Yeah, and you know, um I know Larry worked in um corrections and mental health uh for part of his career. Uh and then when I was doing my paramedic internship, I did uh, part of it over in uh, Fresno and a good portion of uh, my last, in fact, the last third of my internship was in Corcoran, in the town of Corcoran. And we were the sole ambulance for Corcoran Prison. You have Corcoran 1 and you have Corcoran 2 right across the street from each other. And there's over 10,000 inmates. And we were there all the time transporting murderers, rapists, uh, traffickers, and I would get into conversations with these people, and I would find common ground with them. Uh, and they're human beings; they made mistakes, they uh, whatever their circumstances were that led them to where they were. Uh, but it was really interesting the ones that actually opened up and talked because the transport time from Corcoran to Bakersfield, uh, from inside the correctional facility to Bakersfield, you were I was with them for roughly two hours per patient, and I got to talk to them. And the ones that actually talk and open up. Almost every single one said that if they weren't under the influence of drugs or alcohol, they wouldn't have committed the crime they committed at the time. Yep. 80%. They, they estimate 80% of the people in prison were drunk or high when they committed the crime that got them there. And if they had not been drunk or high, they would not have, yeah. have done that. And yet, and yet, go to a NASCAR rally and try and convince people of that, that they should, <laughs> they should put the booze away because... It's, it's not helping them. They, we, we have in this country a culture, yeah. a booze and drug culture that, that is bigger than anybody else's out there. Now, you were talking about, we were talking earlier about the, uh, the idea of ethnic groups. Um, I read a study once that was trying to link schizophrenia with uh, geographic areas. And this guy was showing that, that in certain areas in Ireland and in the Urals in, in Russia, there were high instances of schizophrenia. 
And in his own report, he's talking about, well, I'm interviewing people in the pub in Ireland, and they're going, oh, yes, well, we've lost a lot of people from here to the, to the loony bin, you know? And I'm thinking it never dawned on him that he was, every single place he showed that had high instances of schizophrenia had abnormally high alcohol consumption rates. There wasn't anything else to do. The people in the middle of Russia are drinking vodka. The people over there in Ireland drink a lot. And it was these drinking cultures that, that helped foment all of these mental problems. And, and like I said, if you grow up thinking something's normal, that's just yeah. normal for you. And, and you have to create a new reality. You have to question your reality. When you have that significant emotional event, you need to start questioning every single thing you think. And the first thing you need to do, I used to tell, that was one of the things Leona said to me when I walked in. She said, you know, Carl, I just want to let you know that every decision you've ever made in life has gotten you right there. If that's where you expect it to be, good job. Yeah. And if not, maybe you need to start listening to somebody else and let them do your thinking for a while until you can start thinking correctly. And I thought to her, you know, that's I, I used that for the rest of the time that I was running the recovery home too. Yeah, I mean, if you're sitting there at the bottom, it's because of every decision you've ever made. Why are you still listening to you? Yeah. If you had a financial advisor and he lost every penny you had, would you go back to him when you got a few more pennies? Of course not. Yeah. And the other thing is that most people lock in in their brain all of their, their, their core values and their core thinking when they're about 10 years old. And they use that to judge everything in the world. Well, if a 10-year-old walked up to you and started telling you what to do, you'd say, hey, kid, get out of here. You're 10 years old. You don't know anything. But inside your head, there's a 10-year-old telling you what to do unless you have physically gone in there and extricated that 10-year-old and replaced him with a more mature human being. <laughs> so... Kind of moving along, then you know you made your uh, you you had your 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 turning point, and uh, you had your last drunk, and I, uh, I hope so. Uh, I'm, I can't say I I've had. Well, it. you remember your last one. I remember my last yeah. one, and I hope that I don't have another. Right. But because I am still an alcoholic, yeah. And because if I go buy uh, Lucky's liquor after I leave here, they're not going to stop me from buying. Right. A quart of vodka. And the, and the mantra Actually, being, they're probably going to say, you know, we got to buy one, get one half off today. They aren't going to they aren't going to go, oh, you're Carl Beck. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. you got 40 years sobriety. I can't sell you that quart of vodka. No. They're more than happy to sell it to me. The world is more than happy to show me all kinds of reasons why I should get it. And today, it's more insidious than ever. Yeah. Today, you can get hard seltzers and hard teas. And hard Kool-Aid yeah. and hard this. You can find more ways to, to have alcohol taste like a cherry fizz because those alcohol companies are looking to, to get you hooked. Here's a, here's a hard fact. 80% of the alcohol that is sold in this country is consumed by 20% of the people who drink. Wow. Mm. 20% of the people who drink drink 80% of the alcohol that's sold. Yeah. And there's and the problem. And, the, and, and I'll tell you what happened is years ago, there used to be, there was a commercial in the old days. And there were, there were six people sitting on the beach waiting for Bob. And Bob pulls up in a, in a Jeep uh, with the booze. And he's got three six-packs. And I was drinking at the time and everybody else, and we looked and we were sitting in the bar and we just laughed. We're like, I would have drank that on the way back to the beach. What the, what the heck is it? Three six-packs for six people. That's like three beers apiece. That's ridiculous. Because they were selling to the 80% who drank the 20%. Well, they got smart. Three years later, that same ad had that Jeep 4x4 pulling up, and there's six people. There was a keg back there in five cases because they understood at that point that they needed to sell to the 20% who drink the 80% of yeah. their product. That's where the money is made. That's where the money's made. Yeah. You don't think the tobacco companies oh. don't know who they're trying to get oh, hooked? Yeah. That the, the gambling the establishments, casinos, the yeah. casinos, everybody is trying to get you hooked on something. The yeah. internet, the, yeah. pornography, and then, whatever it is. One of the interesting things that I've, I've, I've learned, Larry could probably speak more to this, is that I, I know that casinos, alcohol ads, tobacco ads, 
uh, video games and all these things. Uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that there's actually psychologists that help develop these things to make them more addictive. Oh yeah, yeah. And a lot of people don't realize that. And and it's and and I have three little children who watching them. And the minutes that they, they're able to have an, an iPad or an iPhone in their hands, even watching adults with Facebook and instant gratification, like, oh, 10 people like my thing. It's that, that again, we talked yeah. about that dopamine response. Like, I, man, it feels yeah. good to be liked. They like my photos. And it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's very seductive. Yeah. And there are more ways to get addicted now than there have ever been. And the other thing is that, that people need to understand is, there are 350 million people in the United States. There are 350 million ways to become addicted, which means there's 350 ways to become recovered. Because if your addiction is individual, your recovery to some extent needs to be individual. While these steps, these 12 steps help, what you do with those 12 steps and how you see them and what you admit to and and how they guide your life can be different for every person yeah. because everybody gets there differently. We're not, we're not cookie moldered. Yeah. You know, we can't just say, okay, well, all alcoholics do this or all gambling hogs do that or all people who are hooked on social media and Facebook do this. Sure. There's a, there's a million different ways. And if you're out there and you're having a problem with anything, and I don't care, even if it's the green beans that Larry over here overdid. Yeah, I like those know, green beans. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things, if you're having a problem anywhere in your life, if there's something in your life that's causing problems in other parts of your life and you're having trouble stopping it, but trying to do it by yourself, seek help. Trust me when I tell you there were people involved in helping you get addicted. Like you were talking yeah. about the psychologist, yep. whatever it is, there there are people out there. I mean, they add nicotine to cigarettes, right? And the bread next to the alcohol, and the bread or next des- to the alcohol. designing casinos so that you get lost once you're inside yeah. them. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're, and and making the games so that they they they're addictive, so they do certain things. I mean, there's there's people out there trying to, and it's all about. You want to talk about not being in control? You're just not in control. These other people are controlling your life, and they're using you up. And they don't care yeah. because if you die, there'll be another one coming along. Yeah. I mean, think about it. How long has the tobacco industry been killing people and yet they're still making money? How long has the alcohol world out there, the, the alcohol companies, how long have they been killing people with their product and yet they're always finding new people to take it? Very good point. You, um, you mentioned recovery earlier and I'm, I'm, Glad to have you here. Glad that you uh, weren't able to, um, well, off yourself. And I'm glad of that, <laughs> you recovered too. well. Yeah. At what point? You know, did... that's the one failure in my life that I don't regret. <laughs> uh, it sounded like you had multiple signs telling you that this isn't for you. This yeah. isn't for you. you know? That might be what we call divine intervention. And, it and, could be. I mean, and, oh, well, I forgot to tell speaking you. Speaking of divine intervention. I forgot to tell you that when I got sober uh, and I completed my 90-day program and became the assistant manager, I went back. The car started, the tape deck worked, no, and the didn't. television worked. No, yes, it, it did. didn't. They okay. all did. My father could tell you he was there when it happened. In our family, that's what we call a yeah. carlism. It's, <laughs> it's an absolute trick. I, I swear. There's I went your back, sign. I went back, and they all worked just fine. So speaking of divine intervention. Uh, well, yeah, what, what I was going to ask was when did you – at what point did you decide to seek? Because I know you're Christian. Your faith is very important to you. What time did you – in your life did you start to seek in your recovery process rather – uh, God for help? Well, luckily for me, actually in my life, um, back when I was nine, 10 years old, and we were living in Las Vegas at the time. And as I said, my father was an alcoholic and he was very abusive. And um, I, w- I was going through a lot of problems. I was a bedwetter and I used to get ripped out of my bed in the middle of the night and my head stuck down a toilet because my father thought that uh, that would cure me. I was a very scared child and was looking for something. And I ended up going to church. I was the only one in my family that went to church. So I would get up on Sunday when I was nine, 10 years old, and I would put my little suit and tie on. And it sounds like a cliche, but we were on an Air Force base, so it was safe. But I would walk two miles to church. And the only time my parents and my family came was for the Sunday school program, because I played one of the three wise men to see me in the play. That's the only time they came. As a matter of fact, Christmas, when I turned 10, all I wanted was a Bible, and my father got me a Bible with my little name in gold. So I had a, I had a scriptural background, but 
over the years that had gone away. So when I first started this program, the, the 12 steps, it says, seek a higher power, as you understand. And well, I mm -hmm. understood him to be God. I understood him correctly. I understood him. So I picked up the Bible and I started reading and, and that's where my higher power was. So my higher power was God, Christ. So that's, that's a little bit different than people who've never had that background. But I, I had had that background as a child. And, and even when I was 11, 12, when, I was, when we were in Indiana, I was still going to church. The local church would pick me up and I would go every Sunday, even though nobody else did. But then, of course, what happened was at age 14, I went from being an Indiana farm type boy going to church every day to being in, put in the middle of 500 bars and no age limit and no uh, parenting. As a matter of fact, I would go down and I'd be drinking with my friends and we'd walk into a bar and they'd go, my God, that's your dad down there. And I'd say, wait. And he'd be talking to Golig, to the barkeep, because I told you, he's a linguist yeah. in blackouts. He learned to Golig. Wow. And if he was speaking to Golig, I'd go, hey, dad. And he'd go, oh, Carl, and he'd bring me down there and he'd buy me some beers. Hey, this is my son. He actually ended up marrying one of those barmaids. She was, uh, she was uh, when they got married, she was 19. I was uh, 16. My sister was 18. It was just that, that I got off track. And I got off track for about 13 years. And then I was able to go back on track. But a lot of people don't have that kind of background to fall back on. But I, I, I did, and I remembered it. So as I went through my 12 steps, I had a right idea of, of who the higher power was. It wasn't a leaf on a tree. If, if you could go back and talk to that boy, what would you say to him now? Oh, I'd, I'd sit him down and explain uh, that he needs to be smarter, uh, that he needs to, to concentrate on other things. And I might use the one alcohol thing that I have that scares the heck out of men. I used to teach first offender DUI for uh, San Bernardino County. And it was really hard getting through to people, I know, because I took it and not, nobody got to me. But I explained to them that, that when you're a man, there is a little gland in the back of your brain that takes uh, testosterone and turns it into estrogen. And it does that because you need both testosterone and estrogen for bone growth when you're a child. And women have that little gland, and it turns some of their estrogen into testosterone. But the thing is that, that once your bones are grown, you don't need it, and that estrogen uh, gets processed out by the liver. Or if you're a woman, the testosterone gets processed out by the liver. But wait, the liver is one of those funny organs. It's a priority organ. So if it has a toxic poison in its system that it needs to process, it processes that first. So if you're drinking alcohol, your liver's busy trying to get rid of the alcohol. You know what it's not getting rid of? Not getting rid of the estrogen. Or if you're a woman, it's not getting rid of the testosterone. So while men are sitting on a bar stool drinking to be more manly, they are becoming more woman. As a matter of fact, if you look at old drunks, you will notice that they actually start growing breasts, their beard goes away, their faces become very, very uh, smooth, and they start getting highly emotional. That's the estrogen buildup. Women who drink a lot will start growing hair, their voices will start getting lower, and they will get mean. And that's because the testosterone is building up. So while you're drinking alcohol, you're slowly giving yourself a sex change. So if you want to do that, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't expect that to go there. <laughs> Most people don't. <laughs> Carl, what would you say to um, kids out there today? You said you started early, uh, 14 years old, and that's such an awkward age. Uh, but I do see a lot of kids those age walking around with uh, vape pens and all sorts of things. What would you say to those those kids uh, who might be listening or their, or their parents even uh, as far as what entering this world of addiction has in store for them? Well, there's, there's very few good outcomes from negative addictions. Um, as I said, you stop growing emotionally if you start using drugs or alcohol uh, to, to mask your, your emotions. At that point, you're not growing. So you're stunting your growth. You're not actually growing anywhere, and you're making yourself more dependent. Now, it's interesting that with alcohol, if you start drinking at age 21, it generally takes about nine years to become an alcoholic. 
But if you start drinking at age 14, it takes about nine months. And part of the reason is, is because if you start drinking at age 14, you're already exhibiting alcoholic behavior. You have to hide your drinking. You have to binge drink. You have to lie about your drinking. You have to do all of the things that an alcoholic has to do down the line. You're already doing that right at the beginning. So it generally only takes nine months to become addicted when you're that age because you're emotionally immature and the, the drug is that much more powerful and your, your life is changing. What you have to ask yourself is, is where, where do I want to be 20 years from now? It's hard with a 14-year-old. There, a lot of them don't think they're going to make it past 30. I never did. I, when I was 14, I did not think I was going to make it past 30. I used to drink down there in the, the bars in uh, the Philippines, and I drank the cheap beer. It was actually cured with formaldehyde. And we would, we would eat uh, methamphetamines and go out drinking for three days. And when you'd pass out, you'd pass out for a day. When you woke up, the formaldehyde set up in your joints, and you literally couldn't move. Ugh. And somebody asked me once, they said, well, what's your goal in life, Carl? And I, at 15, I said, well, I want to become the world's first self-embalmed man. I'm going to save that mortician 10 minutes' work. Wow. That's the attitude that I had. And that's the attitude that I see in a lot of 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds. They don't see that. So if you want to really help them, what you need to do is find out what they're interested in as a life goal and start encouraging that and take them to places and show them how they can be that and give them the hope that they need so that they don't feel hopeless enough that they have to anesthetize themselves with something. And, and, and make them understand that if you're doing alcohol, if you're doing vapor, if you're doing any of those things, you're actually playing into the hands of a bunch of adults who are playing you like the kid you are. Yeah. They mm. are spending... They are spending a little bit of money to convince you that, that, you know, when I grew up, everybody in the movie smoked. It was so cool to smoke. As soon as I started, you know, I liked it. And I'm sitting there smoking away. Yeah. And in those days, my father came to me one day and he said, he, he found out I was smoking. My sister turned me in and he, and he said, I, you better never smoke again. And a week later, she turned me in again and he said, I don't want to ever hear about you smoking again. And a week later, she turned me in again. He said, I don't want to ever see you smoking. And a week later, she turned me in and said, I don't want to see you smoking in my house. And a week later, he said, here's a cigarette. Have so, a the nice bar, so the bar, the <laughs> bar, just gonna he give said, up. You're, yeah, you want to have a cigarette? The bar just kept changing. And he just, well, yeah, you know, because and, that's where society was in those days. Yeah, and, and speaking of society, too, um, I like 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 33, where it says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You may have great morals, you may have good intentions, um, but the environment you're in, you can only resist so much. Willpower can only do so much. Um, so if you seek good, you know, seek healthy, uh, right? But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing. You can go too far with that, too. You know, sure. I've, I know people, they're, they're vegetarians. I know because they tell me all the time they're vegetarians. <laughs> I don't care if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> you know, that's more steak for me. <laughs> You know me. I'm not, I'm not running around telling people I'm a meat eater. You know what? That's yeah. fine. Be a vegetarian. For these kids, they need to understand that it's it's not just between being a vegetarian or or vaping. I mean, there's there's middle ground there. You yeah. know, it's it's a matter of where do you want to be in life when you're 25 or 35. What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do? Where do you want to be? What do you enjoy doing? It's like video games. I, I've had parents who tell me all the time, say, well, my kid plays video games. They used to say, my kid plays World of Warcraft. It's horrible. I said, I'm a level 110 warlock on World of Warcraft. I said, do they use the auction house? They go, what's that? And I said, there's an auction house inside of World of Warcraft. I said, you, you buy commodities and you sell them. By the way, that's a skill. They use that in the commodities trading in Chicago, it's the same exact skill. If you go to those kids and show them that they are learning a skill that could make them millions of dollars mm. by using that same skill, when sure. you buy pork bellies in Chicago, you're just buying virtual pork bellies. You don't actually get those pork bellies. You buy the option to buy some of the price, and when it goes up, you sell them. You make money. It's the same as trading inside of those. Finding ways to, to reach kids where they're at and take them out of where they're at and then into the adult world and show them how they can get from one to other. People don't do that. People just look at them and they go, well, they're just a kid. They don't know. No, they're, they're bright. They, they understand. They, know, they, they have more knowledge at their fingertips right now 
than any other group of people ever had. My last two years, three years at uh, social services, I worked right with a whole bunch of 20-somethings. And every time I told a story, in about 30 seconds, they go, well, that's not exactly true, Carl, because they Google it. And they go, well, fact yeah, that's, checker. That's, oh, yeah. They fact checked me. And yeah. you know what? Most people would get upset. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I interacted with them. Yeah. And as I interacted with them, I told them uh, uh, stories about how people advance and what you need to do in advance. And you know what? In three years, every single one of them promoted. I didn't, but they did. <laughs> <laughs> Vicariously, you did. I lived through <laughs> others, yes. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of social services, and I worked there um, quite a while, um, the far as in, in the community, for those listening who have been maybe doing a self-inventory or inventorying somebody they, they, they know that may have a problem, what kind of resources are usually out there in different communities? And someone could be hearing, listening to this, not exactly where we are, uh, understandably, but somewhere across on this other country. But most, most communities have what kind of services for addiction? Yeah. Well, more than ever and easier to find. So, I mean, basically, if you can get to the Internet, you can find the services. You can put in, you can put in Alcoholics Anonymous. It'll take you to their website. You can put in where you're at. It'll tell you where meetings are. Al-Anon, if you have relatives and you need to go to Al-Anon because of them. Gamblers Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, all of those programs have things. And there are programs online to try and help people even get unaddicted from online. The, the, the help is there, and it's there in, in a lot of ways that it, it wasn't before. For people coming out of jail now, there are a lot more sober living homes in our area. There's the Griffin Houses and some others that have started up. And, and they were started by people who, who have overcome addictions and the prison stigma and come back out to, to put those houses out there so that they can maybe not be recidivist and end up back in. If you're ever in doubt, you can find your local Department of Social Services and ask them, and they'll find uh, they've got pamphlets there. They've got resources. They can help you. They can try and direct you in, in, a, in a, a way that'll help you. But the big thing is to understand that, that if there's anything in your life that's causing negative problems and you can't stop, get help. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah. um, what would you say to uh, family or friends of someone who is clearly struggling from an addiction or is, is getting into that world? What yeah. would you say to them? Well, what I've always said, and I've had a lot of families. I had a lady come into the, the recovery home one time. She had her kid with her. The kid was like 25. And the mother was sitting there telling me, you know, he's got this problem. He drinks too much. He needs help. He's got to have this. He needs this. He needs that. He needs this. And he's just sitting there. And his eyes are rolling, and he's, he's looking up, and he's fidgeting around. And finally, when she got all done, I looked at him, and I said, uh, what do you want to do? He said, I want to go get a drink. I said, well, then go. Get a drink. When you're, when you're ready to stop, come back and see us. Yeah. And the mother got really upset. And then I looked at her and I said, you need to go to Al-Anon. You need to get help for you because you cannot change him. Yeah. You cannot control him. You cannot make him or force him. People will say, well, you go in there. And if you go in there and do it, then I'll do this. That's transactional. You can't be that way. What you need to do is say, look, your behavior has gotten to the point where I can no longer support it. And therefore, I'm removing my support, and I'm going to get help for me. And I hope, I hope you get help. Here's some places. You go to Al-Anon, they'll give you the places. And, and give them a list of places, like my father gave me, and say, you need to go for you. And you don't need to go to get me back. I had guys who would come in to try and get their wife back. No, you can't yeah. be there to get your wife back. So no bargaining. And, bargaining. And, and families get so broken up and so crazy around these things. I've had women whose husbands came in because they were alcoholics and they're trying to get sober. And as they're trying to get sober, the wife is trying to get them to go back out and drink again because she's losing control. When he was drinking, she was in control. Hmm. And now that he's getting uh, sober, yeah. she's not in control. So she's actually yeah. actively working to get him to go wow. back out and drink. It's, it's, there's all kinds of ways this can play out. Are there any particular uh, scriptural passages that you reflect on, whether it's you know, daily, weekly, whatever? That, I just you know. always remember that all things are possible with God. Yeah. Not with me. Very few things are possible with me. Uh, I have a lot of limitations. 
But all things are possible with him. Yeah. It's possible for a 27-year-old to walk across a desert, walk into a, a, a recovery home, and have his life change for the next 40 years. To end up with a wife and a child, by the way, on the 16th of February, I'll be celebrating 30 years of marriage. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Trust me when I tell you that when I was drinking, nobody wanted to marry me. <laughs> Very few women wanted to be around me, let alone marry me. I what, you know? We're going to start bringing this into the conclusion. And um, part of the conclusion is going to um, like to rehash a couple of things that, because uh, as the listeners know, this is broken into two episodes. And um, could you... Uh, remind folks what the signs and symptoms are of addiction. Addiction basically, and once again, we're talking about negative addiction, not positive addiction. Correct. Negative addictions are anything in your life that is causing problems in any area of your life that you cannot stop. That for some reason, you're unable to say, I'm going to stop doing this, even though it's causing these problems. It's causing friction with my wife. It's causing friction with my employer. It's causing me, you know, if I'm spending a lot of money on comic books and not being able to pay my bills, but I still have to get that new issue of something else, then comic books can be a negative sure. uh, thing. And if I can't stop it, then I need to find help. It, it's one of those things, if you can't stop it, it's because you're not in control of it. The first thing to understand is that you're not going to control it. People spend their lives trying to control things that are out of their control. Understand that it's okay to admit that you can't control your addiction. Yeah. And that's the first step towards being freed from your addiction because you're not spending your time trying to control it. You're just going to others to find the help you need to not be a victim of it. You are a victim of your own negative addiction. Treat yourself like a victim. What would you tell somebody else? Yeah. You know, if you saw a kid that was, was vaping his life away and spending and stealing money to buy vape and, and got arrested for it and was in trouble and then went back out and he was stealing more money to buy vape, what would you tell him? You'd say, hey, you got a problem here and you can't control it. You need to find somebody to help you. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the key to it is understanding that it is out of your control. What can believing in a higher power do for one who is struggling in, in general? What, and again, we, we believe in God, Yahweh, but uh, uh, what can believing in a higher power do for that, that person? Well, the way it works in the 12 steps is you have to believe that there's something more powerful than you, that you can turn all of these things over to, all of these negative emotions and what have you. But in that process, as you go through those 12 steps, you have to be willing to really honestly look at yourself to take that inventory, to confess things, to make amends when it won't cause more problems. And I'll tell you the thing about making amends. I went back to buy back some of my uh, bad checks. And I walked into the one bar, and I had left a little statue of Pan at that bar years earlier because it looked cool and people liked it. And I walked in, and I said, uh, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I came back to buy back that, that bad check. He said, well, I stole that, I sold that statue of yours. I don't... It's all, forget about it. But he was really nasty to me. And I said, oh, okay. You know, asking for forgiveness doesn't mean they need to be forgiving you. Yeah. It's about you being willing to, to get amends. I walked into another bar and I walked in and the guy said, uh, Carl, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Your dad said you're looking really good. You're sober now. Blah, blah, blah. Things are fantastic. And I said, uh, he said, can I get you a Coke? I said, yeah. I said, he said, you know, I haven't seen you so long. And I said, well, you know, I'm here to buy back those bad checks. He said, bad checks. Oh, yeah, I think there are a couple down here in a drawer somewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. The thing is that when you do it, you need to be willing to do it for the right reasons. Yeah. So you need to be willing to, to make these amendment, amends because you need to do it, not because they need to forgive you. If you're out there because you want them to forgive you, then it's all about you again. Yeah. This is, the thing is with addiction, the first thing you have to do is get out of me. Get out of it's all about me. I'm I'm... In control. Sure. So what does our belief in God and the coming kingdom do for us and anyone who may be searching? Well, once again, it, it gives us something outside of ourselves, and it, it, it's a, a place to turn the power over to. So as I go through life, I don't, I don't look to be in control of things. I believe that there is a higher power. I believe there is a God that's in control. 
I, I do things like, um, I tell people, you know, if you want to get something, uh, if you need a new jacket, say a prayer, and then find somebody who needs something and find out what they need and then go to a thrift store and look for something for them. And if God wants you to have the jacket, it'll be there along with the thing you're looking for. Yeah. It's a story I tell about your dad. And he, I was telling him, he, he said, you know, always get the nicest things at the thrift store. There's nothing for me. Well, his dad was a, a 50, 56 extra long. Hef, hefty lad. And I said, well, you know, do you ever look? He said, no, there's nothing in there for me. I said, well, you know what? I'm going to look next time. So the next time I, I said a prayer and I went to a thrift store yeah. and I walked in and here was this corduroy sports jacket with the patches on it. And it was a 56 extra long. I bought it for nine bucks. I took it back to him. I put it on him and he cried. It was yeah. the exact jacket he'd wanted all of his all life. All his life. But couldn't afford. Yes. All You have his to life. believe that there's something greater than yourself. Yeah. And that you can serve that thing that's greater than yourself and it will take care of the other things. Yeah. And on our path and on our desire to be in the in that kingdom when Christ returns, that also, as Tim Young uh, pointed out in his episode, that that is our finish line. That's what we're we're aiming to be in. And and what are we doing now that's going to get us to that? And and are the things I'm doing, are the people I'm surrounding myself with, are the things I'm ingesting and are the, what I'm saying and and putting out, is that going to earn me a place in that uh, kingdom? One last quick story. So I yeah. was I was homeless. I was living on a picnic bench in San Leo Cape Ground campgrounds uh, down south by Del Mar. I was five years sober at the time, or actually like seven years sober. So it wasn't the drink, but I'd lost my job as a computer marketing manager and I was homeless and I figured out that I needed to do something to get out of there because my life was all about, you know, you, you do your steps. Sure. So I thought, you know, I'd like someplace like Del Mar, but I can't afford it. So I wanted someplace that was close to that, but cheaper. So I went to the library. I got the demographics for Del Mar for 1966, because this was 86, and put it up against the demographics for 86 to find someplace that was 20 years behind when I could have got a minimum wage job and bought at least a trailer. And Pismo Beach nailed it. So I went out, I got a crappy job, I saved up for a year, I bought a truck, I quit the job, I put what was left of my stuff out of my sister's garage in it, gave the rest of the goodwill, and I drove to Pismo Beach, sight unseen. I took the first job I could find at Kmart, I stayed there 16 years, I met my wife, I got married, I ended up with a home here on the Central Coast, all because I was homeless down there. Now, you would think being homeless is a bad thing, but it wasn't. because I And I didn't see it as a bad thing when it was happening. Yeah. I saw it as a step in something that's taking me somewhere. And I don't know where. I didn't know where it was taking me, but I knew I needed to go wherever it took me. Yeah. And that's hard to do sometimes because that's giving up a lot of control. And what's that word? It starts with an F. Faith? Yeah. yeah you have <laughs> to have faith. Yeah. You have to have faith that, that, that the good will happen. Well, you have an amazing story. You really do, Carl. And... I just have one more question for you. As disciples, um, what's our what's our responsibilities if we see uh, someone who might be uh, suffering with addiction? Even and, and most of the time, that's going to be private and 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 quiet, and maybe they don't even know they have the addiction. But what's our responsibility? Is the unhealthy addiction? Yeah, the responsibility is to to let them know that you're there if they want to stop their addiction. Uh, most of the time, if you bring that up, they're going to explain to you exactly why they don't have one. Right. I had uh, I had another brother-in-law that spent a long time telling me exactly why he didn't have one, uh, but we all know that he did. Uh, they, yeah. But when they do want help, they may remember that you broached the subject with them. And if they do want help then, then you can help guide them. You can help get them the help they need. So it's not a matter of, you know, you got to do it all on your own. You, you can get, put the help in front of them, but you can't eat the, you know, you can put food in front of somebody, somebody but you can't make them eat the food. Yeah. yeah. Self-determination, right? right? They, you're yeah. there for support, but it's, they have to make that well, decision. Well, there are a lot of people in, in our faith and in every faith out there who have problems with alcohol, with tobacco, maybe even with pornography or internet or what have you. But they, the, the first problem they have is they have to keep it secret right? because it goes against what's going on. And that's one of the things that's insidious about negative addictions. The people with the negative addictions are constantly trying to hide their negative addiction from everybody else around them. That's one of the signs of a negative sure. addiction. You know, if you're hiding liquor bottles, you got a problem. Yeah. You know, right. people don't hide cans of green beans. Not even Larry. 
Yeah. Well, you, you don't know where I keep them, actually. <laughs> well, I really want to thank you for coming in and uh, talking with us, Carl. It's been it's been really great, Peter. No, I of course uh, meeting you and knowing you from the age of twelve. I didn't like you back then <laughs> very much, but that's because you held me accountable, and yeah. uh, you have the last thirty years of my life, and uh, I love you for it. And um, yeah, so any closing comments for uh, well i'll tell you the same thing i told you when you were 12 that you didn't like life is not fair uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and i know that you and your sister uh, who were 12 and 14 at the time didn't really like hearing that life was not fair but now even your sister tells her kids life isn't fair yeah <laughs> but you know i want to thank you for having me here and i want people to know that that there is hope no matter how dark it is no matter how down you are no matter what you have done there is hope and there is a way out, but you have to take the first step towards it. And that first step is understanding that you are powerless over whatever this is. And you have to go out and you have to seek somebody that can help you and be willing to turn that all over to a higher power. That is very well said, and I thank you again. Now, I would like our listeners who may be struggling with addiction or know someone who needs help to call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's a national helpline, and you can reach them at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And those services should be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And again, thank you for coming in, Cole. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me.